You have arrived at your destination, 15 Credibility Street. This is 15 Credibility Street. I'm Sharon Hill. And welcome to episode 44. Uh, this is Sharon. And I'm Torkit, as usual. As usual. Um, we're recording this on a Friday night, Friday the 13th. Again. I mean, these things happen usually Again. several times a year, right? Oh, yeah. This is the second Friday the 13th this year. Is it? Yeah. I, it's, so they're not uncommon. But I actually forget about it. I mean, until I get to work and I'm like, oh, it's the 13th and it's Friday. Hmm. And Friday the thirteenth is being shown on TV. It's it. I thought maybe like people didn't make such a big deal about it anymore. Like people don't. I don't know. Maybe kids did it. You know, when I was a kid, and everyone said, "Ooh, it's Friday the 13th. and it was like a big deal. They try to scare you into, um, you know, being afraid of bad luck. But um, people don't seem to make such a big deal about it anymore. Maybe I just don't notice it. But happy Friday the thirteenth. This will be out on a Sunday, the fifteenth. So let's first. Uh, dive in, shall we, to uh, the big story that happened in the past three weeks, took three weeks for this probably to work out, two, three weeks, was the cave rescue in Thailand. I don't know about you, but it was it was like plastered all over the news here. And uh, it was kind of a big story. Everyone was following it. Oh, yeah. Same here in Norway. And oh, I think in Europe in general, this was a big story internationally. Right. They were British divers that really were the heroes of this whole story. Um, I do have some connection to uh, uh, the idea of cave diving. I, I am you know, somewhat familiar with caves, being a geologist. I don't particularly uh, like them very much. I go into like commercial caves, the ones that are have stairs and pathways and headroom and stuff like that aren't flooded although i have been in i have been in a water-filled one you can go into one where you go into boats and you go through the caves so that's okay if it's not raining but um so that's oh, i thought i thought it was the grotto at the playboy mansion oh right yeah so people who take care of local caves or cave systems and and do the exploring they are called grottos grotto clubs here in the US. Yes. So if if you're interested in finding out more about a local cave, there is often a grotto, which is a group of people who are keeping the cave safe and and making sure that um, it's mapped. They're trying to map it for themselves and and, and to preserve it just to make sure that that nothing happens to it because caves are extremely uh, delicate ecosystems. Um, Unfortunately, this one, maybe not so much because it was open to the public. Anybody could go in it. And the kids who eventually became trapped there had been in it before. They were kind of familiar with the cave. And, you know, by now, you know, the story, they went in there. And after like a a couple hours, it started to rain and they got trapped by the the rising water because the cave system goes up and down in elevation. As the groundwater rose, their escape route was cut off. So I wrote a little bit about this for Spooky Geology, because it is kind of spooky that all of a sudden you can get trapped uh, the cave is now an underwater cave, and you could you could die. 
Like one of the divers did. Yes, unfortunately, because he ran out of oxygen and it's confusing and he can't, you can't, you don't know where you are. It's dark. Um, it's winding. There's no, there's no clear pathway. There's other things that go off to the side. You, you get lost. And uh, it, being that it's either underwater or if, if the hole, if the airspace is then filled up with water on either side without an opening to the surface, it, you will run out of oxygen just in that small uh, air pocket, which is what they worried about where the kids were. When the adults started coming in and giving them supplies, they rapidly were running out of oxygen. So while I'm writing this story on, on spooky geology, I can't, I can't stop taking deep breaths because just the idea of being trapped in such a small space and getting even getting into those small spaces and the idea of having to come out by swimming underwater. It's just like, I have to keep taking a deep breath because it makes me feel very claustrophobic. <laughs> so anyway, they did get all, they all did get out, which I was, I was uh, amazed and, you know, overjoyed that they all got out. It was really a, an amazing rescue, but it wasn't a miracle. It was an act of human engineering and knowledge of science that they were able to use existing maps of the cave that one person had done carefully enough to be able to to guess where they would have been had they uh, been able to move away from the water and get to a high spot in the cave. And then when the divers actually did, when the experienced divers came in and actually got there, that's exactly where they were. And it was kind of amazing that they discovered them alive at all because they kind of lost hope a little bit. And then the idea of getting them out was a huge effort, you know, 9,000 volunteers and tons of equipment that was all based on scuba gear, safety equipment, pumps. Uh, those were all results of science and engineering. It took them a few days before they even realized that they were missing, right? No, they, they knew that they were missing right away. But they also, uh, they knew that they were in the cave and trapped. They could not get to them because the local divers, that even the, the, I'm not sure if they got the Navy SEAL, the Thai Navy SEALs in right away, but the local divers that tried to reach them could not. They were like, we, we don't know where we're going. We're too confused. We get lost. We run out of air. We have to come back. So they, they had no way of knowing where to go to find them until the experienced cavers, which were from the UK, from Britain, uh, came to their aid and said, look, I have a map of this cave. You need to contact the British embassy, get these these two expert divers to come in here. They know what they're doing and they could explore the cave and see if they could find the people trapped. All right. But, uh, and how many, but how many days were they trapped there for? It was like a week? Something yeah, like that? Yeah, something like that. More than that. I mean, when they first finally reached them was, I think, 10 days, oh. nine or 10 days before they finally found them, which they were then able to give them food and, and blankets and, and things and hope, I guess, <laughs> at that point that they would be possibly rescued. And then it took them several days to for just for the logistics to be set up and then for them to figure out how they were going to go about getting them out. So... Uh, if you want to read something about that, you can go to my Spooky Geology page. That's the top post there on uh, the Cave Rescue. Thoughts and prayers don't work. Uh, human ingenuity, human knowledge to solve problems really does. And that's that's a this was a good a good example of that. This is a developing story. 
I just found this uh, recently, and I thought it was fascinating because it reminded me of something that took place in the U.S. in 2016. So uh, I went, somebody pointed me to this post about uh, Spiegel Online, a German, Spiegel's a German site, correct? Yeah, that's a German. Yeah. uh, I I don't want to say for sure, but I think it's a German tabloid. Oh, okay. So they had this story. But I actually went to – it's actually in Poland. So I went to some Polish sources to and Polish sources in English to find out more that uh, originally a Spiegel Online sh- uh, did a story that a, a five-meter-long snakeskin was found on the bank of the Vistula River in Poland. And people just assumed that it was a real snake that had shed it. And it was – they brought in a – veterinarian who said yep it's a, it's a fresh skin it's not old the police began to look for what was identified as a, a over five meter long indian python and one report from polish radio said that the police saw the snake in the river but escaped now that's kind of iffy <laughs> because you know logs going by in the river can be mistaken for snakes but as we have dealt with before on doubtful news absolutely i so i'm not really convinced that they saw the snake but they seem to be assuming that it is real and that it's out there and they're, they're going to try to find it the fire brigade spokesman uh, pavel franchak said that uh, this is today that firefighters were now using four drones to search the area by the air and four boats and pontoons and they were also uh, using an employee of the Warsaw Zoo to try to see if they could find any uh, trace of this thing. And apparently uh, they have been talking to local snake breeders. Have you lost a snake? Did you let anything go? Do you know who might have done this? And uh, they're looking for people who might be breeding snakes of this type or who had kept these snakes, maybe have released it. And it looks like they also found a a track, a trackway of of the snake. So this is getting kind of interesting. Yeah, tracks found on the sandy bank near, it looks like Chisiska, but it's Shishiska. Uh, and they're searching the islands and they're, they're in the river and they're setting up cameras. So they're saying that the snake can weigh like 50 kilograms, which is 110 pounds. And this reminded me very much of a story that we covered on Doubtful News um, when when I was intermittently writing stories. I'd taken a break, but I couldn't resist this one of a snake on the loose in Maine, near Westbrook, Maine, uh, in the Presumpscot River. This is June of 2016, and they immediately gave this this snake, of which they just found the skin, the nickname Wessie because of the Westbrook town. And everyone was in a panic, and then people started coming with shotguns and all sorts of things to try to catch a giant snake and putting out bait and things like that. And he had his own Facebook page, and there was merchandise. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Where's Wessie? They never found it. They never found a snake that left this giant snake skin. So you can definitely assume it didn't make it through a main winter. That's impossible. They did They did identify that it was a python. I forget what kind of python it was. But there's no way it would make it through a main winter. Uh, it is also possible that some joker just dumped his snakeskin there just to make people freak out. 
which is one of the theories that they have for the one in Poland now, mm. that it could just be a Joe prankster who's left out the uh, shedded skin. Yeah, it's it's doesn't take much to to think of something like that to freak people out. Uh, the trackway, which I did see a picture of, is interesting. I mean, I guess they could have just drug something along to make it look like a snake trail, but it's curious. Uh, this is an ongoing story. They're still looking for it. They're warning people to to watch out and don't bring small children or pets near the river. I'll I'll keep track of that story and see if anything surfaces so to speak. The next story also ongoing, we'll have to wait a few weeks before we get to uncover the the good the good bit about this. Um, this large sarcophagus was discovered in an excavation in the city of Alexandra, Egypt. Now, I want to be the first one to say this because you just know people, there's going to be people out there who's going to make this claim. So I want to be the first one out there to say it. It's the lost tomb of Cleopatra. Oh, you're not the first one. I was. Ah, <laughs> oh, damn it! No, 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 no. It was. People are saying it's Ramses. It's Alexander himself. It's yeah. It's Cleopatra. No, it's not. In fact, the experts are saying, yeah, we've heard that before. It's not. That's not it. It 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 doesn't. It could be a noble person, you know, a dignitary, but. Because of the place it's buried, it's just in the ground. It's a large sarcophagus, and it had a, a bust. Right, yeah. That, that was buried next to it, but which you can't really make out who, who that one is. Uh, so it's obviously, they think that this is obviously someone who was in high standing. Sure, because it's it's huge, and it's made of black granite, which is like super heavy and expensive and hard to hard to chisel. Yeah. <laughs> so it was, yeah, like you said, the, there was this bust, an alabaster head, and alabaster is like a mar- soft marble, and it it sort of erodes very easily. So the facial features of whoever this was is completely lost, unfortunately. Yeah, it's the uh, person with no face at, uh, at this point. It's creepy, isn't it? <laughs> kind of looks like the Invisible Man. Yeah, from- right. All he's missing is like the sunglasses and (laughs) it looks just like the Invisible Man. So apparently they were excavating for a building site here and they they discovered this this big tomb. This is a surprise because everyone thought that, you know, Alexandria is a modern city now. And they thought that looters had already gone through all the old artifacts, the ancient artifacts that had remained. So they were kind of surprised to find this and even more surprising was that there's the layer of mortar between the lid and um, the base of the coffin is still intact. So there's a seal that hasn't been opened. So nobody has got to this yet, no matter how long it's been buried. And it's buried pretty deep, like five meters down. So nobody's seen it recently. Um, and apparently nobody has touched it ever since it was it was sealed. And they, they anticipate the dating was like, 2,000 years ago. That's pretty interesting. Which coincide with Cleopatra's time <laughs> frame. I just don't think she'd be buried in the ground. So, yeah, 
it's nonchalant. It's plain. Yeah, it's kind of plain. I mean, it's it's a fancy tomb, but it's not a Cleopatra fancy tomb. I don't know. I mean, her circumstances of her death are are still a bit suspicious and stuff. So we we, we don't really know. But so now they have to open it. Except, um, it's like a really heavy lid. So they have to get special equipment to come in and then carefully be able to unseal it and take off the lid. And then who knows what they're going to find inside. And of course, this has spawned all sorts of ideas and of what's inside and all sorts of jokes about what's going to pop out. <laughs> I think my, my favorite one was that David Bowie is going to pop out all, all, <laughs> all young and David Bowie. Yeah, yeah, he's going to tell us how he transcended time and space and was able to, you know, come come to us in the future. And uh, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's just it's just stuff for you know it just sparks imagination and people come up with all sorts of weird ideas. Oh, you know, it's going to be it's going to release some disease on the world or some plague or demons or who knows what. Just like the um, curse of uh, Tutankhamun. The 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 supposed curse, I right? Say. <laughs> I just finished reading uh, Jeb Card's spooky archaeology book, which I recommend. It's but it's not for it's not it's it's harder for people who don't know much about archaeology. Uh, but it's still extremely readable, and it covers the mummy's curse and how it how it was manufactured and why it became so popular. And it's really fascinating if extremely complex of like cultural influences here and there to give us things like that mummy's curse and um, the idea of Atlantis repopularized and other lost continents that became popular and uh, the idea of ancient aliens and where that that now popular idea came from fascinating stuff I, I there's so many threads in there it's it's Amazing that that he's able to tease it all out in so many sources. So um, recommend that book if you're interested in things like that. Now we really don't know anything it, other than that they found an untouched two thousand year old tomb in Egypt. Right. We don't know. We don't really know much of anything, um, and probably we won't until they they open it, which should be interesting. We'll be uh, several weeks before they're able to get everything in place. They can't move the whole thing. So they have to open it on site, which means they'll probably have to construct buildings over it, you know, temporary shelters and bring in large equipment. And so I don't I don't know anything more about it than what I've read in the news, but it is a curious story. Another story that I came across, which is far more of a questionable story. This may not be true, may not be accurate. So it was it came from the BBC. But if you trace it back. It's typically what has happened is stories come out of often African nations from dubious sources. They're translated and they're picked up by syndicated uh, uh, syndicated news sources or even, uh, you know, major news sources that just repeat what the story originally said. They don't go back and check any of the facts to see if they're true. So the headline in BBC was that a self-styled traditional healer in Nigeria died after one of his clients tested his bulletproof charm on him. So Chinaka Adoezue, he was 26, he died 
after instructing his client to shoot him because he was wearing a charm called an Odeshi charm. It's actually, it's got a, it's a, that's a shortened version of the word Odejeshi, which literally means it is not leaking. He fashioned this charm of some sort, doesn't really say what it is. Well, it doesn't say what it is, but it was some sort of charm around his neck. Go ahead, shoot me. I'm I'm now invincible to bullets. <laughs> yeah. No, he wasn't. <laughs> Obviously. Obviously, yeah. Um, this is like similar to the story that I do not remember quite when of the uh, the snake handler priest that claimed that he was impervious to snake bites and then he died from a snake bite. Yeah, yeah. Faith is a dangerous thing like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's definitely a perfect example of of dangerously uh, irrational levels of faith getting you in trouble. So the shooter was arrested. Uh, he w- says he was charged with murder, which is kind of unfair if that is the truth, that he was told to shoot the guy. But I'm not sure we know the whole story. We don't know if this actually is a true story or we don't really know what happened to this guy. If he told the guy to shoot him, we don't know if there's witnesses or what. I can't make heads or tails about it to see if it it it, it hangs together or not based on what the the original report was in uh, Punch NG, which is Nigeria um, news source. They've published similar stories before, but then a Facebook user seemed to be the one who popularized the story. And it was complete with the picture of the dead guy staring at you with open eyes and a big bullet wound in his, in his gut. Um, it wasn't as, I mean, it's a dead guy, supposedly. I can't really tell if he's dead or not, but the wound looked like it had been sort of worked on that they tried to save him. I don't I don't know if they did or not. And I can't really tell what kind of gun was used or anything like that. So you look at the comments on stories like these, which are, <laughs> they give you a different angle on, on what people think of these stories. Because what I think about it is something maybe completely different than what other people think about it. So again, it's, it's hard to tell if this story is as what they said it is. Uh, it's, it's almost like one of those you know, urban legend type stories where it's like so unbelievable that people could be this gullible. But I guess it really does happen. I mean, I remember stories about soldiers using this this juju, you know, magic to try to protect themselves from being shot. You know, they would go to their local shamans and say, give me a charm so I wouldn't be shot. Or they were like in, in war-torn countries where they were at risk of being killed on a daily basis. So they would they would ask for these charms in order to protect them from being killed. Um, it's a common thing because you want to try to control your your fate a little bit if you live in these kinds of societies where your life is at risk all the time. So it's probably more common. But to actually challenge somebody to, to shoot you, I mean, why why not try sh- you know shooting you in the leg or something? Why... Why aim at your vital organs? But so I don't think we're going to hear any more about this story because it's because of the language barrier. But it was something that went around a little bit and was kind of curious. Uh, If the story is true, I'm pretty sure that the guy who 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 shot this healer, 
he is now no longer a believer. Well, here's the funny thing. If you did look at the comments, you would see that some people thought that it only works with particular guns, types of guns. It only works in particular instances or something may have gone wrong with the charm. So there's all these excuses that wait, people wait, can wait. come how, up with. <laughs> how can something go wrong with a charm? You've done the spell wrong. Well, well, th then he's a... A, a bad, bad, yeah. Then, then he's a bad shaman or yeah, healer or right. whatever. He... That's just a few people. And you'll always have those people. But the rest of the people said, oh, my gosh, this is so ridiculous that people still believe these charms work. Um, and most of the people don't don't seem to buy into this supernatural idea of charms. But And they sort of lament that others still do. It does sort of keep the country a bit backwards if they hold on to these beliefs as – as we've talked about before, there's several nations that still hunt and kill witches that they think are causing them problems and, and harass people for, for witchcraft. still goes on today. Especially in African countries where people think that albinos have like some kind of like magic properties and right. they are therefore hunted and killed. Yeah, for their body parts. Next on the agenda is... A upcoming movie. I guess now it's in post-production and it's going to be released this year. It's called just UFO or UFO 2018. I'm not sure. I think it's just UFO. I think it's just UFO. The, the, the trailer says UFO 2018, but I think the, the okay. 2018 is it's just yeah. it's coming out means that it's coming out this year. Why would you name a movie UFO? Because it makes it very, very difficult to get uh, hashtags, web searches. <laughs> well, to me, it just screams of laziness. Like, like that was the working title. And then they just like, they couldn't come up with anything better. So it's like, eh, let's just call it UFO. And, but it sounds, it's, it's like the, um, it also just makes it sound like a B movie. It's so like B it movies does. usually have kind of like lame titles yeah. that are like really just like one word or like a couple of words that just like spells it out to you what this movie is about, like Sharknado. We we watched uh, a lot of these old B movies from like the fifties and sixties, like The Attack of the Giant of the Giant Woman, uh, Tarantula. <laughs> oh, but yeah, about? <laughs> that was I love that movie. I love Tarantula and them. Yeah, yeah. It's funny. It's a fun little 50s, 50s, 60s B it was, movie. It was 50s, yeah, and it was fantastic. That, that was that was the atomic age. You had tarantula, you had them, you had yeah. you know giant ants. Those were fantastic and, movies. And 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 the title of this movie just seems like a like it's either it's laziness or they're trying to just kind of like have a throwback to like this classic mm. 50s B movies. So it's just like, let's just call it UFO. Like, that just says it all, what it's about. Boring. But the trailer of this just makes it look really boring. It did. The acting was terrible. Gillian Anderson, of all people. Of all people playing, like, the scientist or the, the professor type. And, and you, you, you just know that she got that, that they went to her because she was in the X-Files. 
the whole thing seems so unoriginal. You know, this this guy and his girlfriend go out against the FBI to try to find um, to prove to the world that you know his UFO experience when he was a kid was real and that UFOs exist, and that the, the pattern of the sightings that are taking place in the modern day are just cover-ups, you know, they're trying to cover it up because there's there's really an alien invasion or something like that. It's just blah, dumb, blah, meh. I, do, I just don't care. This just seems to be like really by the books, modern day, trying to be blockbuster-ish. And they have like, because they have like the FBI and the secret government organization trying to make the cover-up and all that. Yeah, it just Ugh. seems very by the book. But the the one thing that did interest me, and I, it kind of got me worried, right at the beginning of the trailer, they show that, I don't know if it's just like the hook that gets you into the whole story of the O'Hare incident. So this supposedly took place, well, we know it took place, that something took place on, on a Tuesday, November 7th of 2006 at 4.15 in the afternoon. Federal authorities at the Chicago O'Hare International Airport received the reports that um, many employees, 12 employees, witnessed what they said were metallic saucer-shaped craft hovering over one of the gates at the airport. And then they said that the um, the disc-shaped craft, one of them, um, rose up into the sky, shot up into the sky at high velocity and left a, a hole in the cloud cover. And you could see blue sky through the cloud base. So, And then there was a picture taken of that hole in the cloud. However, there are such things as hole punch clouds where the, the sudden movement of air creates this circular gap in the cloud bank. We, we've, we've seen these. It's, they, they don't need anything to, they don't need a UFO to create them. So what did people see? Did they actually see metallic craft? Um, this was a long time ago. It was 2006. I don't remember what the exact descriptions were, and I didn't go back and look that up. Unfortunately, what the movie might portray is probably not going to be accurate. It's going to be a dramatization of and something made more dramatic than it probably was or that we can document that it actually was. They did even mention in the trailer that, uh, you know, oh, the authorities say that it's the drone, and they, of course, don't believe this. But uh, back in 2006, were there many drones back then? I'm, I would assume there were some sort of, you know, prototypes or, or working drones, probably not like the ones nowhere near like the ones we have today. It doesn't matter. I don't think they saw drones. I think that there are other atmospheric phenomena that could create possibly the illusion of something in the sky. Like temperature inversions can create like mirages and things like that. Of course, you know, and then people say, oh, well, you're, you know, you're really reaching and you're, you're pulling out excuses. Well, because we don't have any reason to believe that there were 12 metallic crafts hovering in the sky. But uh, so, so you're reaching, but <laughs> alien spaceship theory. No, that's. Yeah, that sounds plausible. <laughs> well, I'm going to transition from that ridiculous movie to a personal experience I had with what promises to be another ridiculous movie, this time a documentary. So I wasn't going to talk about this, but um, 
I decided that I, I, I don't, I don't care. And, and it made me pretty angry. And then I found something that, that might alleviate my anger a little bit. So I decided to talk about it and, and people said, oh, well, why don't you talk about it on the podcast? So I'm, I'm honoring a request to talk about it on the podcast. So I got a Facebook contact from a TV, uh, wasn't a producer. He was, he was a photographer, but he was working with a, um, former, one of the guys who appeared on ghost hunters TV show, not the two main guys, but another guy, I won't mention names because they asked me to sort of keep things confidential. None of this is really confidential. There's a whole website on it. So (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why they asked you to keep it freaking confidential. Because even the location is known and the, the homeowner and the, the group that's there already are offering tours and, and a whole website and pictures on it. So whatever. Um, so, they, you know, they belong to the Pilgrim Media Group, which had done Ghost Hunters. So same spiel. So immediately I'm like, oh, gosh, not this crap again. Because I, I've gotten these requests before. You know, we want to we talk to you about this new documentary we're doing or this TV show that we're doing and you'd be a great fit for the skeptic. It's so formulaic. It's, again, unoriginal. So he contacted me and he said that we are very, very interested in interviewing you on camera for this documentary about the stone tape theory. And they wanted to explain the documentary. Now, the stone tape theory is the idea often invoked by paranormalists to try to explain residual hauntings or things that go on repeatedly in a home. They feel that the environment, the the rock, the bedrock, maybe the, the stone in the structure has recorded by some means, uh, undetermined, recorded some sort of psychic energy or emotional energy at some point in the past that is now being replayed in the present and sort of looks like a tape being played. So it was once recorded in the past and circumstances permit it to be replayed in the present. And you perceive this as a ghost, a haunting, something of that nature. So I wrote about this on Spooky Geology. I did presentations about it and um, I published uh, I, I published it as well. There was, it was in Skeptical Briefs. Uh, he must have read that. He found it uh, interesting, I guess, my point of view. And he seemed to... So I did get on the phone with him and his his uh, cohort, not not the person, not the ghost hunter person, but another person involved in, in this documentary. And it was typical media speak. Oh, it is so frustrating to listen to somebody that sounds like, you know, the stereotypical Hollywood people you see portrayed on TV. You know, they love everything. They're so interested in everything. Oh, that sounds great. That's that's just what you want. That's just what we're looking for. That looks awesome. This is going to be fantastic. That sort of stuff. Typical Hollywood fakery. Fakery. In other words. It was such bullshit. It just turns me off. And I, I must have said repeatedly, I am not a believer in this. This, this, has, this theory has no merit. And I will not say that it does for this location, first of all, because I haven't been to the location. I know nothing about the location, so I'm not going to say anything about the location or the geology. But they wanted me as a geologist to talk about this idea of this particular place, which is in Mississippi. I forgot to mention that. It's Mississippi. Mississippi House. You can look it up if you want. It's no secret. Um, 
So he gave me the location because I said, I, I can't, I'm not, first of all, I'm not going to say anything about the location, but at least give me some background so I could look up the geology and see if there's anything curious there. You know, it could be, could be something geologically related. There could be sinkholes or something going on there. Who knows? Could be a fault line. I don't know. It could be something. So if you give me the information, I'll look it up on the geology map. They also were interested in the idea of earth lights or ghost lights because the, the person living in this house also said that she'd seen lights. And I said, well, you know, I'm really interested in the idea of earth lights. There may be something that's naturally causing illuminations. Oh, we're really, really interested in that. We want you to talk about that. I said, yeah, I'm not talking about lights in a house. I don't, I can't think of any mechanism where that would work. I'm talking about lights that people see that appear to be sort of floating you know, over like, like earthquake lights, earthquake lights, uh, the Min Min light, the Marfa light, the Joplin spook light, things like that, that people say that they've seen for decades. And I find that curious. I'm, I'm curious about what they're seeing. Could be a mirage, you know, could be reflections. I, I don't know. Could be a number of different things. Could be something we, we don't really know about yet. But that's different than people saying, oh, there was a glow in my house or there was a light that followed me down the stairs or something like that. I don't have anything to say about that, but they wanted me to talk about earth lights. And we scheduled the interview. This, this person was going to drive a very long way to come to my house and set up cameras and interview me on, on camera to be put into the documentary. And then I got off the phone with him and he had sent me the address and I looked up the address and here, here is what I wrote back. I'll, I'll, I'll just, I'll just read what I wrote back. So I took the geologic, I took a look at the geologic map for this area and was able to notice something right away. It's not, it's not near limestone. Now he had told me, I'm, I, let me just interject here. He had told me that the investigators said that it was having to do with limestone. If there was limestone in the area, and limestone apparently was. Uh, integral in this whole stone tape idea that they suspected was going on here. So he seemed to be okay that I was going to, de to debunk the idea of the, the stone tape theory. But I said, look, um, it's, there's, no, there's no limestone here. So whoever, whoever told you this was full of crap. So I sent him uh, the map. I said, attached is the particular area of the home on a map. The two yellow areas are young sediments that have eroded from the hilly area to the north the hilly area is quartzite, and the sediment from it that fills the downhill slope area is sand, gravel, and silt. The hatched lines are an intermittent stream, and I asked him, is there a stream on the site? If not, this could just be a historic drainage, but as you could see, it's not unique to the area. In other words, this is not limestone at all, and if this was stated by someone, they didn't look at the geology before making such a pronouncement. So I sent this to him, and I got crickets for a day or two and I didn't want him to come all this way because I was not comfortable with this idea of an interview I said I got I got nothing to say I there's there's nothing I can say about this it's all nonsense I and I repeatedly said I have some ethical obligation as a geologist to not speak about something beyond my area of expertise and to come off as an expert where I am not an expert. And if you put me on camera saying geologist Sharon Hill says this, I don't feel comfortable with that. And I felt extremely uh, uneasy 
that they would edit creatively. That is a valid concern, and it happens all the time. Exactly. So I was not feeling good. Especially in these kind of documentaries, especially things that that deals with the paranormal. Pseudoscience. Yes. It's very, the editing can be very creative, let's say. I had, I had done a little bit of homework after he had given me this basic information. Not only did geologic maps, but I had Googled the site and I saw that it was open for business, more or less. Uh, Clips of of people doing investigations there were still using the same gadgets, the same goofy EMF meters, still recording EVPs. And, you know, they were blown away by the EVPs, you know, the ghost voices. And I specifically said, I have no interest in something that does the same stuff as all these other goofy reality paranormal ghost shows do. The same blinky gadgets, the same nonsense with with EVPs and, 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 and stuff like that has no validity whatsoever. Oh, no, he assured me. We just we want the truth. We want to be scientific. And, you know, the the alarm bells are going off in my head. But I was trying to be polite. But eventually, you know, the the interview was canceled. They did get back to me and said, "Okay, yeah, we understand. Thanks for your time. Um, We'll cancel the interview. I honestly hope this documentary comes out (laughs) because I'm going to rip it apart. Damn you and demanding quality control. I know. This is so common. Like like you said, it happens all the time. And what irks me is so badly is that these paranormal investigators, they want the science credibility. They want somebody to, to be on their side with some credibility because they don't have any. But they don't want the actual answer. They want you to say what they, what you, they want to hear. And they want the sciencey sounding stuff that serves to dress up their nonsense. And if you don't give them the answer you want, they will edit you to make it seem like you're giving the answer that they right, want. Right. You, you, you'll go to be edited the same way Homer Simpson was <laughs> on Rock Bottom. Our, our listeners who are Simpsons fans will probably immediately know what episode I'm referring to. I, I believe I've actually seen a clip of that myself because it's so good. Yeah. But um, so I, I, I'm not the only one who has uh, who has experienced this. Lots of people have experienced this, but it's quite common in the scientific community to be asked to be part of these documentaries, even for channels like Discovery, Science Channel, um, History Channel, things like that. Oh, uh, it was just a few years ago where a lot of prominent scientists like uh, and, and physicists like uh, Lawrence Krauss, they were uh, part of this documentary narrated by uh, the actress who played Captain, uh, Captain Janeway on Star Trek Voyager. Oh, right. And, 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 she can't, and she had to come out and say, like, I did not know that this was what this documentary was about. And like that they com- completely lied to me about what the documentary was about. And I was basically just hired to do voice work, but I didn't really know anything about what this documentary was about. And I, I do believe the documentary was about how the earth is the center of the universe and everything revolves around us. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. It, 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 it was the, um, they were uh, trying to d- debunk the, the, the uh, Helios centric yeah. version of, 
our solar system or the universe That's or like, crazy. So, so it, it was, but there was a lot of prominent scientists and like it was large crowds but there was also like others who were in there as well and and the, just as as big of a deal probably even more so was the whole expelled documentary about creationism in schools that was hosted by ben stein and um Lots of biologists. Dawkins was in that, wasn't he? Yeah. And again, they were creatively edited or they were ambushed with questions and then made to look stupid via editing and as if they didn't have an answer to the question. Man, you're putting yourself in a dangerous situation there when you don't have control about how you come off on screen. So there is something you can do about this. And what what's the remedy for this? <laughs> If you go to sciencefriction.tv, you will get some idea of how uh, rampant this fake science um, veneer is in Hollywood, how much they want the scientists to come on their shows and their documentaries, but yet they will selectively edit them to say what they want them to say. And the only way that we're going to get around this is to expose it. Of course, it's not going to be exposed by the people who are making these movies. In fact, they will blacklist you if you come out and talk about it. You will never be asked to speak about other things again. I'm not sure that that matters, but uh, it, it, it does hurt the viewers because we're not getting good scientific information coming out of things that they're saying is uh, factual. It's not factual. They're using fake scientists, cranks, or uh, selectively edited scientists who didn't really say what they, they've been shown to say. So if you go on Science Fiction TV, you can donate to help produce an independently produced documentary that exposes all of this Hollywood nonsense, actually by using the people who have been through this and the evidence of of their experiences and, and what happened to them. And it's – I did listen to um, a, a, an introduction to this project, which we will link to in the show notes. I, I, I But I, I suggest that you just go on to sciencefiction.tv and, and see what it's all about. But it's Brian Dunning at Skeptoid Media who does the project and he talks about some examples that he had heard from people who came right out and said – I never got another call after I, I talked about how badly they edited me on this this TV show. Or I, I, won't, I wouldn't agree to do my interview without seeing the final cut. And, of course, they won't do that. They won't let you see the final cut. This is a clear indication that these documents, these documentaries, these TV shows are made with a particular agenda. They are made to serve advertisers and uh, the certain populations that are going to buy the products. They're not about good science and good uh, information to the public. And that is dangerous. It's unethical. And it's it's going to get us into some trouble. It already has. People believe ridiculous things that they've seen on TV. Well, this is one thing that I learned during my studies down in Australia. And I studied film. And I did a class about documentaries. And our film teacher said that Every documentary that you watch, even though they claim to be objective, they all have an agenda. Mm. 
everything is edited to have an agenda uh, and especially reality tv even though it's supposed to be reality uh, as it says it's right there in the name but that's like pro- probably one of the most edited fake tv that you can that's out there right because like, real life goes slowly and isn't as dramatic <laughs> as they want it to be yeah. so I, I i remember i mean i remember i I was one of these reality shows I watched. I think it was Hogan Knows Best with, with the pro wrestler Hulk Hogan. And during the credits, there was script writers. <laughs> Why would a reality <laughs> show need script writers? Red flag there. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, I, I, I hope that our, our listeners do donate. I, I did go and I donated to the project because I now I really want this to be made. I really want it to get attention. And there there have been scientists. I remember when that whole mermaid and megalodon thing was going on, the, the science channel. That the, I was Discovery, right? Something like that. Science Discovery, they're they're kind of connected. I think I think they were shown on, on Discovery Channel, yeah. And uh some scientists, marine scientists came right out and said and, and weather scientists too said i don't even answer the phone when these these stations come calling because we know their game and it's 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 out to use us and not use our our experience and our knowledge but to uh steal our credibility for their non-credible products and that's crap and it needs to stop. And the the only way it's going to be done is if you don't have that line of money that pays for these shows because of their advertising value. And uh, we, we need to get some, some actually good information and good shows out there. So it's going to be a long trip to get there. But you got to start somewhere. Finally, I... Um, I, this this is a, a tricky subject. Um, some people have asked me to explain why I don't like being called a skeptic. And I'm still often introduced as one if I'm doing a talk or if I'm doing an interview on a podcast or if somebody writes about what I said or something, they call me a skeptic. And I bristle at that. I don't like it anymore. And I never really articulated why, and some people wanted to know why, and I figured that if I did end up spelling it out, then um, then I could just point to that and say, here's here's why, eventually. So I wrote it up. I finally wrote it up, and uh, with with a little bit of help from Howard. You remember Howard? <laughs> Everybody remembers Howard? Our, our old co-host. Our long-lost co-host, Howard, helped me out with this because I, I did just a stream of consciousness stuff. Uh, write up and I sent it to him. I said, where do you think I should go with this? And he helped me organize it a bit and uh, gave me some advice about keeping it straightforward and, and not personal. Although there was a lot of unpleasantness that I did leave out of the piece because it was too personal. But um, so I, I, I put this thing out there and, and basically I feel that the skeptic community, the skeptic organizations are not modern uh, they're not focusing on the things that they should be focusing on. They're focusing instead on atheism and secularism. And there's been lack of attention to 
important populations that need critical thinking ideas and, and, and content like kids and parents and teachers. I still see a lot of elitism going on and uh, bashing of believers, which I don't think is helpful. I see a lot of scientism, which I get a lot of blowback about, but it's, it's rampant. Scientism is the idea that science can fix everything. Just throw science at it and science, it works. You know, that's so that's the answer to everything. Well, we, we, we have touched upon this subject on the podcast before yeah. about on scientism. Right. Uh, but overall, bad behavior, uh, too much back padding and, and, and not enough regarding a, a coherent mission and, and meaningful outreach. So a lot of these things, this is my opinion. This is what I feel that's happening. Uh, so I put it all out there. And um, I did get uh, a lot of people, some strangers, chiming in with agreement and sharing the post. So it, it did get some circulation, which I was glad to see. Uh, although I haven't heard much from my friends who sort of identify as skeptics still. So I'm not sure what they think about it. Uh, I may have have uh, struck them a little too close to to the heart there. Um but it could be a case of if you have nothing nice to say, don't say anything at all. Oh, so you think I shouldn't have said it? No, they aren't saying anything because oh, they don't like they it. have nothing nice because they have nothing nice to say about it. Everything I said in that piece can be checked by other people. I didn't use references in it because a lot of the material isn't. I can't, well, a lot of it is now gone. It's right. It was on the internet years ago, because, and it's gone because people been deleting their old posts or and and i would yeah blogs no longer exist exactly and i I guess i can go through old uh, magazines and old blog posts and and come up with with citations but i wasn't going to spend that much time on it if if people want to disagree with me i don't care but enough people who have been around know that i'm not lying i'm not making this stuff up uh, it is my opinion that some things are more important than, than others. Obviously, I'm not saying that you can't call yourself a skeptic. I'm not saying there, that you should dismantle the skeptical movement and communities and organizations. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that it doesn't suit me anymore. It doesn't fit me. And it's not my tribe. And I'm going to I'm just going to shed that label. And I really don't feel that I can support, you know, the orgs and those ideas anymore. I'm just going to keep doing my own thing, which still means that I apply skepticism. But it just doesn't mean that I'm, I'm, I feel I can be a member of a community who's labeled as such. I don't like the label. Labels got bad connotations right now. And it limits me. There have been plenty of times where I've been on podcasts or paranormal, talking with paranormal people. And that skeptic label is a tough hurdle to get over because it automatically puts you as the antagonist that you don't believe, that you're not sympathetic, that you're you're closed-minded. Yeah, well, and then you also have the, the label, skeptic label has been embraced by people who don't apply scientific skepticism, like climate change skeptics. Right, yeah, it's going to be a hard label to reclaim. Yeah, uh, so... I'm not going to die on that hill. <laughs> But but uh, no, me neither. But uh, <laughs> but then then there's the point. Like, what term can we use? It's I don't think you need a term, and and I think you get hung up on semantics if you want to do that. And some people have said that I I don't need a term. I don't need to label myself, and I think a lot of of people who 
who can talk and write and, and, and research stuff, why do you need a label? Labels are limiting. Um, I, I, I don't, I don't need one. I, I do remember one of the first TAMs that I was at and uh, I met someone we were waiting for the elevator and they were there for like, it was like some kind of, uh, I think it was the BMX conference that was happening at the same time. And they asked me about my t-shirt. I had the TAM t-shirt on and, and I told them, well, I'm here for the skeptic conference. And they was like, what's that? They had like no idea. And they were like, oh, do you mean like climate, like they were like global warming skeptics and things like that? Because that's what mm-hmm. they knew about. That's what the, probably what the mainstream heard when they heard the term skeptic, they think things like that because that's what they've heard about. No, not that at all. <laughs> and to me, that's a failure of the organizations to put that information out there. They have, again, not been media savvy not had spokespeople out there that do their job, uh, not putting these concepts into the public's hands to show them that there are other people who think differently. And here's here's another way to think about it. Here's this tool that you could use to try to make sense out of it and get to the best answer. They failed at that. Um, that's that's to me that's that's obvious that it, because they haven't grown and they haven't gotten that that information out there. Nobody knows what it is or they're confused about what it is. Now, on the flip side is the offshoot of skepticism or what's called skepticism, what's termed a skeptic movement that exists in the uh, the neither world of YouTube. And maybe you can talk about that a little bit because I don't really go there, but I know it exists. But it's a scary, scary place. Well, you have the so-called YouTube skeptic community or most of them seem to have come into the uh, realm of skepticism via the shit show that was atheism plus that was like 2012 2011 2012 around there yeah 2012 that, that and, and, and atheism plus was a social justice movement i don't remember the name of the woman who came up with it she wrote this uh, blog post that was like, oh, we're going to be atheists plus, this is hence the plus, atheists and plus, we're atheists plus we care about social justice issues. And we're atheists plus we care about secularism. We're atheists plus we care uh, care about um, LGBTQ rights, and we're atheists plus we're skeptics. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of backlash from the uh, atheist skeptic communities because they were, well, there's already a lot of organizations out there who already deal with these problems. We should deal with skepticism. We should deal with atheism. That's kind of like our thing. This whole thing just ended up just being like a huge drama and a lot of people outside of the community took notice of this and started talking about this on uh, and a lot of youtubers started talking about this especially people like sargon of akkad uh, and armored skeptic the amazing atheist shoe on head uh miss me nice another one uh that 
funny thing is that these are all fairly young people, like they're in their 20s, maybe early 30s, mm-hmm. and they're diverse. Like they're not just old white men. Right. <laughs> like they're, they're, they're young people, there's women, there's even people of color. But their version of skepticism seems to be mostly nagging about feminism and social justice warriors. <laughs> and, and a lot of it is now, in, in the last few years, it just seems to be like uh, bitching about feminism and, and uh, SAWs and how they are incorporating their political agenda into modern pop culture. Like there was so much there's been so much backlash against like the new Star Wars movies. This is what you talk about. Yeah. Because the lead, the, the, the new lead protagonist in the new Star Wars movies is Ray, who is a woman. Wait. So like these, these YouTubers are against feminism. Yeah. A lot of them are, but they claim that like, they claim like, Oh, Oh, I'm not, it's not like I'm not against feminism and I'm not against social justice. But, like, I don't want to be indoctrinated with this in my summer blockbuster movies. Oh, okay. It's completely ridiculous. Okay, so there was this initial flush of Atheism Plus supporters. And th- those people are still out there. They're, they're, their skepticism is all about atheism, primarily. It has, has very little to do with a, a, a philosophy of applying rational thinking, as far as I can understand. They're not scientists. Most of them. They don't no. talk about science. The, the thing is, like, a lot of the people who uh, were part of the Atheism Plus movement were like, yeah, they're probably atheists, but that was also, like, not the big issue for them. Mm-hmm. The big issue for them was various social justice issues. Mm-hmm. And whenever people engaged with them in discussions and debates, they had very heavy-handed tactics and resorted to name calling and then insults and all that stuff. But that happened from both sides. Right. So, so uh, yeah. That, that, hence, hence why it was such a complete shit show. They weren't professional. They weren't really all that intelligent in their delivery. The woman who basically created the whole atheism plus movement within just a few months, she was just like, yeah, I'm out. <laughs> And within a year, the whole Atheism Plus movement was basically just an online forum and little else. But it spawned a whole alternative community there on YouTube. Yes. So uh, what I found interesting is that this skeptic label has now been co-opted by those people on YouTube that are calling themselves that community now, which are talking about something completely different than what the skepticism that I was steeped in. There's a real disconnect there. That's the community that they need to be reaching out to, meaning the younger people, the modern media forms, the diverse crowd, women, women talking about women's issues. Uh, and they're completely divorced from that. And, and they don't even really talk about it. You can go to alternative skeptics conferences. You can go to the traditional ones who, who talk about alternative medicine and psychics and all sorts of stuff that, that are detrimental to our, our modern society. And then you could go to these alternative skeptics conferences where you're talking about defending against the alt-right. <laughs> it's another world. It's very strange. Speaking of the alt-right, that's also uh, a lot of these 
YouTube skeptics are also being lumped in together with the alt-right, though I, from what I've seen, they are fairly left-leaning. Yes, They're it, just not that left-leaning. Again, <laughs> see, there's the problem with labels. These labels are limiting and they're nebulous in their definition, and I don't like them because what what the heck's the alt-right? And, and where do you fit into this? And uh, labels end up being a problem. So, you know, the bottom line is that the, the term skeptic is not useful to me. It is doesn't represent me anymore. Uh, and, and I don't want to use it. And so what? Um, you know, people, a couple people have, have, have made some snide comments about it. And I don't really even know these people. Yeah, I was wondering what has your overall feedback been on, on this blog post of yours? Overall positive, definitely. A lot of people said, spot on. It's exactly why I feel disconnected from from the skeptic uh, community right now. That's why I left. It was didn't make sense. And uh, so a lot of people totally agreed with me. There were some people who disagreed with me on certain points. Often the thread that involved social justice and feminism uh, I'll stick to my guns on that. I think that that was a complete diversion and mission drift that that split people apart. And because of of uh, weak leadership in the organizations, it was allowed to to grow and and split split off a large portion of the population to go some and do something else and caused a lot of animosity and, and problems. But uh, so I did have a couple of incidents where people. We're saying stuff like that, but I, 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 you know what? I I've been here longer than you, and I and I've seen more, and I've seen the, uh, the seedy underbelly, if you will, of <laughs> things that go on behind closed doors and and uh, uh, behind the scenes and backstage and you know stuff like that. So, uh, yeah, I'm pretty confident in in my opinion there. I, I'm I'm not a you know a, a come lately person. I've I've, I've been around a while. One point that people had said was that I was deserting the movement. I was deserting the cause. One guy even said, we need these, we need warriors to keep up, you know, the fight. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I never was a warrior. I'm not going to be a warrior. <laughs> That's not the kind of language I'm using. It's kind of the language I don't like uh, used. And I'm not deserting it. I'm just, I'm just shedding the label. I don't like this code anymore. I'm going to leave it behind. What's the big deal? And instead, people didn't really get the nuance of the post. They read it just very superficially and just picked at what they, what hit them in the face, I guess, and didn't really understand the whole concept. But for the most part, there was very few people. That's my thing. And I think I am done talking about it. I don't want to talk about this anymore. I did end the post with, I hope to see the day where maybe the label can be reclaimed into something positive and we come up with goals and better missions and clear missions and uh, strong leadership that, that takes us into the, the 21st century where we should be in delivering good information to, to people and help them, help them manage. You know, there's, there's a world, there's a country right now here that's really disgusted with 
the lies and the uh, fake information and the propaganda and everything that's being fed to us every day. And we can't make sense out of it. And and we really miss the having those tools to, to maneuver through this kind of society. And there is a role for skeptical voices out there. So I don't care if you call yourself a skeptic or not. You can still do that. Uh, you can still play that role in being that that uh, that calm and rational thinker and, and, and use science and, and the best information to try to get to the best answer. And that's kind of why we do this podcast, because we try to get past the, the nonsense and show you that... Mm, Maybe there's a grain of truth there. Maybe there isn't. But here's here's a new way to think about that story. Absolutely. Fifteen Credibility Street is a production of DoubtfulNews.com. That's Torko Udegaard and me, Sharon Hill. Follow us on Twitter at Doubtful News. Contact us via email at credibilitypodcast at gmail.com or leave a comment on the post for any particular episode. Thanks for listening. Please come back again.